As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We've seen a big spark come from the ceiling. When a bullet pierced the ceiling of a private Milwaukee lounge. Larry's right. Michael Poe rushed his friend to the hospital. It's either you stand up and you go to our car or you can do it in cuffs. But soon found himself under suspicion. You guys are telling me I shot my friend. What happened next? What I do? What I do? What I do? Was captured on a bystander's cell phone camera. They had no right to put their hands on him. So why did police leave it out? of their official report. They knew that they did something wrong. That's why they did not put me in this report. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm joined by executive producer Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hi. And, of course, by uh, Contact 6's Jenna Sachs. Welcome back to the podcast, Jenna. Thanks, Brian. Hi, Sarah. So we are recording this episode on Wednesday, April 13th, for release on Thursday, April 14th. April 14th marks one year since the owner of a Milwaukee cigar lounge says a bullet from the apartment above struck one of their members. Michael Poe and another man, Daniel Beard, then drove their injured friend to the hospital and they called 911 on the way. It was at the hospital that Milwaukee police separated them, questioned them both, and eventually five officers tackled Michael Poe to the ground and then apologized and then left the whole encounter out of their official reports. And that is why he called the Fox 6 investigators. There's a lot to unpack here, guys. I know you, you've watched the story. There's obviously a lot going on. Uh, it, it's a, I think, as you phrased it to me, Jenna, it's a fascinating story, and it is. It is fascinating, especially the way you put it together. We can see chronologically how everything took place that evening. You know, the men driving their friend to the hospital, the police speaking with everyone involved. Um, so we can see clearly what happened and what what the outcome should have been, but it's probably different for everybody involved, especially the police officers who are trying to piece together what happened. Um, but the video is so clear, and you can see why this gentleman would be frustrated having seen his friend be shot and then ultimately being taken into custody to speak with them. Um, can you kind of walk us through exactly what happened that evening? Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. It is it, There is this sort of chronology. What's so fascinating to me about this case is it's one bullet. And then the chaos that ensues, and, and because of body cameras and a citizen camera, we get to see this from so many different angles. But there ended up being in the end, and, and I, I have the, the police, the, the dispatch reports, and I went through with a fine-tooth comb and found every officer who was named, um, you know, every officer's number that was given, what time they were uh, included, where they were located. And it turns out there end up being essentially three different locations and 32 different Milwaukee police officers, detectives, forensics people. I mean, there were 32 different employees of the police department that responded to this one bullet. 
but it all started at this private lounge. And that in and of itself is interesting because what do you mean private lounge? I didn't know there was such a thing as these private lounges. Well, this is a cigar lounge. Essentially, it's in a sort of a private home or building. Um, when you go in, it looks like this sort of swanky club, um, except that it's not open to the public. It is something that a, a handful of guys who've been friends for years decided to put their money into and open sort of their own. You know, they're, they're, they're cigar lovers and they um, are businessmen. And they're all African-Americans. So they sort of have this common experience of being black professionals, sort of experiencing maybe what the what that experience is like for someone who is African-American in, in the world. And, and so they share those those experiences. They decided, let's open a lounge together and let's have a place to hang out, um, a place that we can enjoy our love of fine cigars. So they've got these. Um, you know, the sort of the, the dark wood theme of the place. They've got televisions to watch sporting events. They've got a little sort of dinette area um, and a lot of really comfortable sort of lounge chairs. Three of them were sitting around watching basketball one night in their private lounge. All of a sudden, bang. They don't know immediately what's happened, but they see dust coming from the ceiling right near one of the ceiling fans. And, and uh, both Daniel Beard and Michael Poe said to me that at first they thought the ceiling fan blew out, but it was still going. And right then they hear their other friend call out, I've been shot. And they look and their friend, we know his name is Larry. Um, Larry would not talk to me. He is actually an executive in a local company that makes like $32 million a year. I don't think he wanted any part of a story about crime. I think he was worried about how that might reflect on his his business and his role, not that he's done anything wrong here. But Larry cries out, he's been shot. They look over and, and blood is just pouring from his leg. So they are now realizing a bullet must have come through the ceiling, but their first priority is help our friend. So Michael Poe says he grabbed, I don't know if it was a sweater that was hanging around his, his neck or something that was around his neck, and he tries to make a tourniquet, though he doesn't really know much about making tourniquets. He later gets advice from one of the officers, well, you should have put it here and so on. He's trying to make this tourniquet. His other friend grabs his keys, and their first instinct is, let's get him to the hospital. Why they didn't call 911 just to come to them, who knows, but in the heat of the moment, they're like, let's get him to Columbia St. Mary's. So they, they get him in the car, they race him down to Columbia St. Mary's. There's no one left at the lounge. They lock up. And at that very time, they call it in. Police immediately respond to the lounge. And in the body camera video we received, you could see that they're there in a very short amount of time and they see blood on the curb. So now they know there was something that happened here, but there's nobody inside and they realize we've got to investigate what happened. There are no witnesses, so we've got to go in and they end up forcing their way into the lounge. Meanwhile, you have Michael Poe and Beard at the hospital explaining to officers what they know and just trying to get their friends some help. And from there, it all sort of escalates. So we can see the arrest of this gentleman, was it technically an arrest? I guess it became one. They said to him in the video, you can either come with us willingly or we can take you out in handcuffs. What led to that and, and how did he respond? Well, that's a that's a, an interesting question here that I had because I'm not an expert necessarily on uh, sort of, uh, I, I guess, law when it comes to police commands, uh, where the sort of fine lines on this. Um, but what ends up happening is officers separate and this is there's a shooting right they're, they're coming to the hospital saying our friend's been shot police don't know we, we know there's a crime that's been committed unless it was a complete accident but someone's been shot and they want to know they want to get to the bottom of it 
So the officers who arrived at the hospital, because they sent officers to the, to the lounge, police also sent officers to the hospital right away. And so they get there very quickly. And, and both Poe and Beard approach one of the officers and start explaining what happened. And they decide, let's separate them and get their stories. So they're telling them about this flash and the ceiling, the loud noise, their friend crying out. They believe there's a bullet hole in the ceiling. Um, and, and, and they've been separated. And for a while, the officers that are sort of minding each of these two witnesses seem satisfied with that explanation. And so there's a sort of a down period where they're just visiting with them. They're just, the, the, the one officer is asking Michael Poe, he's curious about the lounge. Oh, tell me more about, you know, oh, it's a private club. Okay, and, and you have, you say you have police officers who are members. We haven't mentioned that. There were police officers who are members of the lounge. Oh, well, who are they? He starts naming some people and the officer goes, oh yeah, yeah, I know him. Oh, he's retired, great guy. You know, so there's this sense that, okay, your story makes sense. This isn't going to be a big deal, but we've just got to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's. And at one point, the tone changes and you can see it on the body camera video. Actually, it's a citizen video. There was someone in the lobby who I think sensed that some things were changing and that things were getting a little more animated and he starts to record. And Michael Poe, again, this is just in a hospital lobby, by the way, not the ideal place to do police interviews. This isn't a controlled environment and, and police are, are talking to him and, and he's Michael Poe starts to get a little more animated because he realizes they're starting to look at him potentially as a suspect. Maybe he is the one who, who fired a gun here. And that's sort of added to by the fact that Michael Poe, when he arrives at the hospital, tells the officers, I have a gun on me. I'm a concealed carry holder. I've been trained. I'm supposed to tell you that. They say, no problem. Thank you for telling us. He lifts up his shirt. The officer takes his gun. She does tell him, and this becomes important later, she says, you know, you really should have that in a holster. He just had it in his waistband. Um, he says, you know, I was always told by my cop friends you shouldn't have it in a holster. I don't know enough about that stuff to know whether that's true or not. I, I, I think having it in a holster is probably a pretty standard practice for concealed carry holders. But nonetheless, he tells them he's got a gun. So police officers now know this guy had a gun and someone's been shot and they don't know what happened. Um, but there's that bullet hole in the ceiling and Michael Poe and his friend think it's pretty obvious we didn't do it. We were in the lounge. Officers don't necessarily know exactly what happened and and things start to get a little bit more animated and they tell him you've you've got to come with us we can't talk to you here you've got to come to a squad car so we can ask you some more questions from the officer's perspective they want that controlled environment they want them in a squad car it's recorded um, a detective who doesn't wear a body camera can then come in and ask questions and and that's sort of the procedure here so that they can help eliminate him as a suspect but he doesn't see it that way He's just tried to save his friend's life. He's concerned about his friend. He's been on the cell phone trying to reach his friend's wife. He's worried about the guy who's back there getting worked on. And now he feels like, wait a minute, you guys think I did this? So he becomes more defensive and animated. And then tensions tend to grow uh, uh, fairly quickly here. And pretty soon, five police officers are on top of Michael Poe, tackling him to the ground and handcuffing him. What are you fighting, sir? But also, even before that, officers also knocked on the apartment upstairs. And that's a which, key. Do yeah. you think? Yeah, it was like, don't you think that kind of like you know that was like the step before things started to kind of get escalated? You know, the conversation. That's the. I think that's the thing that really threw this into uh, fr from what seemed like a pretty simple investigation into a much more complicated uh, and chaotic situation. When police at the lounge 
find they found the bullet hole in the ceiling, which matched what the witnesses had told them. So it seems like this is a slam dunk. The bullet came from above. The only question is who shot from upstairs and how did a bullet come from upstairs into the lounge? So they knock on the apartment door that leads upstairs to the apartment that's directly above the lounge. And a young woman answers and they say, is anybody else shot upstairs? And she says, no. And they say, well, we've got to come in and look because someone's been shot downstairs and there's a bullet hole in the ceiling. So the officers come in and they search the entire apartment and there's thick carpeting in the living room of this apartment. They can't see at that point that there is any bullet hole. They can't find a bullet hole anywhere. And the three young women who are in the apartment say, we don't know what you're talking about. We heard a gunshot, but we don't know where it came from. What they don't tell police what they're not being honest about is they were right there when the man who fired the gun was in their living room. It was a young man named Cameron Lee, 20 years old, who was there and had a gun in a backpack. And he pulled out the gun to show it to them, probably showing off what he had. Maybe he thought it would impress the girls. We don't know why. Um, but he pulled the gun out and he later tells detectives when he went to put it back in his bag, it brushed against something and it went off. The bullet struck him in the leg. I don't think it was a straight through shot, but enough that he had a wound in his leg and then went through the floor, which later you could see the bullet hole in the floor after they pulled the carpet back, but then goes into the lounge and shoots someone. Well, when the guys downstairs call 911 right away, police respond quickly and Cameron Lee is in the living room and he's thinking to himself, where do I go? What do I do? I shouldn't have this gun. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not very experienced in this. And he asks the girls, is there any other way out than going out the front door? The cops are already here. And they said, no, there's no other way. They, he, he tells detectives, the girls said, you need to go talk to police. Instead, he runs out the back door and jumps off a very high balcony, second story balcony, but it looked more like two and a half stories from there with an injured leg, lands on the ground, takes off running, climbs a 10 foot fence, chucks the gun and, and leaves. Police don't know any of that. They just know that the girls in the apartment or the young women in the apartment said, we didn't see anything. Cameron Lee, though, has left with an injury and he ends up showing up at a second hospital at Mount Sinai. And when he shows up and eventually police connect that this happened at the same place, the news that gets back to the officers at Columbia St. Mary's is there's a second shooting victim. They don't know yet that it corroborates Michael Poe and Daniel Beard's stories. They just know there's a second victim. Michael Poe had a gun. This isn't all making sense. And now this is getting serious. There could have been a shootout. And at that point, that's when they decide we need to, to, to take you, Michael Poe, into the back of our squad car and ask you questions. So looking back, how does Poe feel about how this all went down? Because it's not actually the main reason he contacted you, how this all went. It was what happened when he requested some some files from the incident. How does he feel about how this all happened and, and what he found out later? Well, I think some of how this, how he feels about this plays into when this happened. If you think about this, this was April of 2021. This was not long after the summer and, and fall of 2020 with all of the George Floyd related protests. And Michael Poe is someone who doesn't have a criminal record or uh, a, a long arrest record with police. He doesn't have a lot of experience being in the back of a squad car or being the target of a criminal investigation. Um, he does know what the experience, he said this to me in our interview, he does know what the experience is like of being a black man in America, and he just, he didn't know how police would feel about him. And he's in a situation where 
He's done nothing more than try to help save the life of his friend, and he feels the eyes of suspicion turning on him. And he, I, I, because if you watch the Citizen video that was shot, you can see that Michael Poe is being very verbally resistant. Hey guys, I'm not going out like that. Sir, Listen to me, I'm not sir. going out like that. Okay, then are you going to stay I am not going out like that. He gets very uh, animated and escalated, and it's easy to watch that as an outsider and just say, why didn't you just cooperate? Like, why let it get to that point? Why not just go to the squad car and answer some questions? And I asked him that. And Michael Poe said he's asked himself that same question ever since that night. Why didn't I just cooperate? I'm the guy telling young people in our community, just do what the police say. But he said in that moment, you don't know how you're going to react, the emotions you'll have when you're being accused or he felt he was being accused of something you didn't do. And he said, I felt like once I got in the back of that squad car, I wasn't coming back out, that the system isn't always fair to people uh, you know, African-American people in the city of Milwaukee. And he was afraid that what if they just don't figure out this wasn't me? What if I go to jail? He said, that's all happening very quickly. That's what was going through his mind. Now, you can certainly hear that and say, okay, that doesn't make any sense. You know they're going to see that your gun wasn't the one that fired. You know, you can make all sorts of arguments, but he just says in that moment, he reacted in a way he never expected. And in fact, What's, I thought this was this wasn't in the story that was on the air, but I thought this was a really surprising response. He said, "When police ultimately released him, when they realized, oh, it was this Cameron Lee who accidentally shot from above, and they were telling the truth the whole time, and it wasn't Michael Poe, they apologized to him. They give him his gun back, and they even sort of joke around about, hey, maybe we'll have to come check out the lounge sometime." And he said, at that point, that was the first time when he realized he hadn't done anything wrong because he thought. Well, maybe I shouldn't have behaved the way I did, but the way they apologized to me, the way they let me go made me feel like not only did I not do anything wrong, but they knew they had. And he said, and so he decided at that point, I just want to know what's in the reports. I want to see what they write. Like they didn't write me a ticket for resisting or obstructing. They could have. They didn't. He wanted to know what they were going to write. So he requests the case files. And four months later, Milwaukee police released 45 pages of records from this incident. And it talks almost exclusively about Cameron Lee and his role in what occurred. There was one page with a couple of paragraphs of a detective interviewing Michael Poe at the hospital. It indicates that Poe told them about the bullet hole in the ceiling and, and that they brought their friend to the hospital. And then it ends with that this witness had nothing further to add. End of report. Nothing about the rising tension levels, nothing about the use of force that five officers used to tackle him to the ground, nothing about resisting or obstructing, just no mention of it at all. And that's where he became very frustrated because he felt it was like that whole interaction had been erased from what happened that night. And if it was justified, if it made perfect sense for police to respond the way they did, why wouldn't they write about it? They are required, once they use force, to write a use of force report. And that should have been in the record. Um, he came to us asking what happened here and why isn't this? And, and, and he kept asking me during the interview, what do you think of this? Did I do something wrong? Did police do something wrong? He wasn't coming out and saying, I think police were wrong. He was questioning what happened and he wanted us to get to the bottom of it. And so we filed a request for that use of force report and for all of the body camera video. And, um, and that's when things went to the next level. 
So that's what I was going to ask, like, as far as like, you know, we, you know, at Fox 6, you know, we know the process of how things go and, you know, we get a complaint or a, a tip or something, but just so that listeners and viewers know. So, so Poe comes to you, Hey, this report, you know, doesn't, something doesn't seem right. It's not sitting well with me. Can you look at it? And then your process, just so they kind of, you know, listeners and viewers can get a, a, an idea is then you, re, you know, request those videos, which is how we got the, the body cam, but what about that viewer or the the viewer the the bystander video from the hospital? Where how did that come about? Well, and and that's another uh, unique element here. The person who was a bystander in the uh, lobby of the hospital recognized Michael Poe from the cigar lounge. He'd been in the lounge before, and he knew. And you hear him at one point say, "That guy didn't do anything wrong." And he he actually adds later, "You know, I know that guy. He's a good guy." So because there was a familiarity, that citizen later contacts him and says, I've got this video. So Michael Poe now has the video and he hangs on to it while he waits for the reports. Now he's got the video and the reports. There's video evidence that five police piled on top of him. And there's a report that says absolutely nothing about it. That in and of itself is wrong. That we can say definitively should not happen. So we went to Milwaukee police to find out, you know, what's the rest of the story here. And I filed a request for all body camera video from the officers there that night at the hospital um, and, and those responding to the lounge. I also requested that use of force report. And I made this request in January. And within a matter of days, uh, I was informed that the use of request for the use of force report was being denied because of a pending internal affairs investigation into that incident. That raised the question for me, has this been pending since last year? Or when did this start? And, and I, I pressed Milwaukee police further, and ultimately they responded and said, it was my request for the use of force report and for the body camera video that prompted Internal Affairs to open an investigation and take a closer look. They were not aware of this incident. They didn't know anything had gone wrong. And uh, because Michael Poe never filed a complaint. Remember, he just wanted to sit back and see what the reports said. And when he found something in those reports that was troubling, he came to the Fox 6 investigators. He has yet to this day to file a complaint, though he does tell me now that he's seen the body camera videos, that he does intend to file one. We'll see and we'll follow that if he does. But Milwaukee police recognize there should have been a use of force report. It's still not clear to me if one was written and not released or if no one wrote one, if they sort of tried to make it just go away. And, and that we don't yet know. And, and I guess we'll have to wait for the results of that investigation. Okay, so that is currently pending. What do you think the main takeaway from this story should be? Or, or what's your takeaway, Brian? You know, it's a tough one because as I talk to you and we talk about the, the you know, what happened in 2020 with the George Floyd protests, with all of the issues between, you know, relationships between the community and police. Here I am, a white male journalist. I haven't had that life experience, so it's hard to put myself in Michael Poe's shoes. I've also never been a trained police officer, and it's very hard to put myself in that circumstance. So I did ask some experts what they think of this. And, and we talked to a former Milwaukee police detective, now retired, who agreed to review the body camera videos, the case files, the citizen video, and give me some thoughts on what went right and wrong here, um, as long as we didn't identify this former detective. And he ultimately told me he felt police were absolutely reasonable in their request for Michael Poe to go to a squad car. And when he refused, they were in within their perfectly within their rights to detain him. And that you asked earlier question, uh, Jenna, that question of the difference between being arrested. You know, they said you're not under arrest. 
but yet you have no choice. And there is a difference between being arrested and being detained as a witness. And the difference has to do with a matter of sort of this, your own civil liberties. You can be detained, but still make phone calls and still, you know, keep your cell phone and, and, and uh, you know, maybe have a cigarette or whatever it might be. You're arrested. Your, your civil liberties are a little bit different. And there are different standards, by the way, uh, that police have to meet to, to do one or the other. At the point that they wanted him to go to the squad car, they were telling him, we are detaining you as a witness. Um, it's not clear if they explained that very well. I think the, the expert that I spoke to looked at this and said the officers didn't particularly handle this very well in the way they relayed what was going on. Unless they actually thought you're the guy who shot, you know, th there wasn't enough evidence to suggest Michael Poe shot someone here. There was certainly reason to question, hey, we got to sort this out. We don't yet know if you shot the guy at the other hospital. We just need to ask you some questions. The expert I spoke to said they should have done a better job of explaining, look, we're not concerned that you did this, but we need a detective to come and ask some questions. And the hospital is not the best place to do official interviews. We just want that environment. We don't think you did this. We're not saying you did this. Just come with us and you'll be out of here in no time. Or, you know, if all goes well or if, you, if you're, you're innocent, you'll be out of here. It was the approach that this expert felt was a little bit lacking because there seemed to be an accusatory tone. And it put Michael Poe on the defensive. Um, that's one. Um, but of course I also talked to a civil rights attorney who, who viewed this a little bit differently. And he said there was nothing that gave them probable cause or reasonable suspicion that Michael Poe had committed any crime. There was no reason they needed to detain him. He was cooperating. He was volunteering everything. He volunteered that he had a gun. He volunteered the information about what occurred at the lounge. He was telling them everything they needed to know. There was no reason they needed to forcibly take him to a squad car, and he felt that his civil rights may well have been violated. Two different viewpoints. So your question, what's the takeaway here? I think the takeaway is these are complicated situations. And oftentimes we see the end result, which is police officers tackling a person. And many times people sort of immediately revert to their camps. That's, that's police brutality, or that guy should have cooperated. And there is a lot of nuance that goes on in between. I can identify, well, I can't identify, but I, I can empathize with someone who has the experience of being a black man in America who may not have been in this situation before, doesn't know how he's going to respond. I can also empathize with police officers who have this chaotic situation and are just trying to follow procedures. Um, it may be a matter of training, it may be a matter of understanding, but, but I think these are very complicated scenarios. <laughs> It is time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little fun, by answering a question for which we have not prepared. And, of course, we have Sarah Smith here to ask us that question. What do you have in store today, Sarah? Hello, again. Um, okay, so I realized that there are things that people feel real passionate about. Uh, and we've had candy conversations before on the podcast. Um, and one is Halloween candy. Feel People feel very uh, strongly a certain way. I think Easter comes in a close second as far as candy and things that people either love or loathe. Um, so Heaps, I have a couple loathe. Easter candies. Not, All are right. you asking about, okay, yeah, am I'm I not jumping even the gun? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. not there yet. Yeah, okay. You have not prepared for this question, um, or have you? So I'll, I'll just, you can kind of do a yay or nay. You can speak your piece about it. This is, speak your peeps about it. Anyway, um, 
Okay, so the first one, Easter candy, yay or nay? Peeps. Absolutely nay. nay. No way. Okay, no. I'm a yay, but they have to be stale. So I'll cut the plastic on a pack and let them sit on the counter for like a month, and then I eat them. They're not as like mallowy. They're more like chewy. They're delicious. I'm having anyway. a deja vu moment. Did we talk about this on the podcast last year? Because I think I remember <laughs> I you talking know. about stale peeps. And somebody okay. else. Well, I, let's I think I, it's new. <laughs> I think I... <laughs> I think I talked, the reason I bring that up is I think I'm retelling the story. I think I talk about the fact that my son, who's a scientific experimenter, doesn't really like eating them, but he wants to blow them up in the microwave and do other oh, things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Well, for me, it's a texture thing, like that grainy exterior yeah, with that, the mushy yeah. middle. Mm-mm. That's fair. Um, you know those, you, okay. know, you, you guys know like Reese's eggs, right? You know, the peanut butter, like, or Reese's peanut butter. That's okay. on my list too, okay. yeah. Well, well, I'm not trying to jump the gun on you for everything, but they have different <laughs> ones that instead of peanut butter inside, it has marshmallow inside. And to me, there's something about oh. marshmallow is the biggest disappointment in any candy. <laughs> marshmallow just ruins the experience because you think you're getting this, and it's chewy and no. Okay, That's why yeah. I don't like this. I used to think that too. Okay, but have you ever had one of those Buddy Squirrel whipped egg with the chocolate on the okay i'm not a huge malo fan either but dang biting into that it's like uh so good okay. <laughs> anyway, the only time um, i like a marshmallow is heated up on a fire uh in a s'more yeah like because then it's, I think it's softer right. and not as chewy but anyway well and there's a texture thing there's a gram to kind of anyway um okay so how about those reese's peanut butter eggs yay or nay fantastic nay. Oh my yeah. gosh, I could eat, the problem is I you, you eat them and they're so rich and I realize one is all I should have, but I want to have mm, a hundred of them. But I have seven. They're yeah. amazing. You know, no. I don't know why they, I don't particularly like them. I like like a Reese's peanut butter cup, but there's something about these eggs that are just so, they're so sweet and it's just, it's, I don't know, something is about it, it yeah. tastes much different filling? than the peanut butter cup. Is it too much filling? Because sometimes the eggs seem like they're like almost all peanut butter. Like they're Yeah, like they need a thicker chocolate. Butter. Yeah. Okay, Reese's, call me. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, what about Cadbury eggs? The miniature ones with caramel in them? Mm. Oh. I, think, I think those are I decent. I'm not craving I like the them, OG. I like the OG ones. I used to think it was actual <laughs> yolk, egg yolk, and I was like, why would anyone eat raw egg? No, it's not. It's just delicious yellow frosting, but or whatever it is, but I think they're delicious. <laughs> I, I like eggs over easy anyway, so the runny yolk. Oh, that's that's great. That's yeah. I'm but okay you have with to that. eat them like this, and then they drip all over. It's a, it's a process. Um, okay, what about jelly beans? It depends. Like I could like it depends entirely maybe on my mood, and like how much I need sugar at that particular moment, whether it I want it or not. But usually I'm not one that says, oh, I really want some jelly beans. It's more like if they're sitting there and I've been looking at them for two hours, I might slowly <laughs> work my way into the jar. But, I, you know, I, I like, like, the juicy pear ones. Like, there's certain Ooh. flavors that I'll pick out. But, in general, I'm not a huge fan. But not like those Brock, you know, no. regular big old. Mm-hmm. No, I like Starburst jelly beans. That's I buy and buy, like, are pretty seven good. bags of them. Starburst jelly beans, I could eat them all day long. Yes. Regular, yes. like, Brock's-type jelly beans are oh. a no. With all yeah. due respect to our late President Ronald Reagan, no. Um, mm. but, but, the, but there's something about the Starburst ones that, I mean, although... I'd rather just have a Starburst. That's fair. That's fair. But if I'm, it's tis the season, so I'll eat the Starburst yeah. jelly beans. Um, I, the funny part, though, is that I end up buying like three or four bags, and I don't eat through them quickly, and then I'm still eating them in summer, so it's a thing. Okay. Um, all right. And then how about your chocolate bunny, hollow or solid? Ooh, hollow. I, I like breaking it off and having like a chunk. <laughs> Satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. There's downsides. I've, I've never been a big chocolate bunny fan, largely because... I think when I was younger and I got a hollow one, I felt like I was being ripped off. 
but when I had a solid one, it was just too much. It's too like much. too it's hard, hard to, to bite into. And yeah, yeah it, like I would rather bite into something that I can just chew and swallow and not have to like gnaw on to get the, yeah. the chocolate flavor. So, and then if you finish a chocolate bunny that was solid, then you feel miserable and think you're, you know, you, you need to make well, who, better life decisions. Who makes those gold ones? Is it like Godiva or something? But they're like gold with a red Stover. ribbon. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, I think that's Godiva. Oh, I, I love just, just breaking Stover. off yeah, a piece of those. Way. They're so good. There is a store that I saw a couple weeks ago. They were selling a, a bunny, and I can't remember if it was solid, solid or hollow, but the ears were like seven inches long. So like for people mm-hmm. that really enjoy biting the ears on the bunny, um, that was for them. So I just... I spent... The other day, and I'll just acknowledge, you know, here's a shout out to Target. I was in the Target Easter candy <laughs> section for an inordinate Dangerous. amount of time because I was really trying to pick, like, what what do I actually need uh, and and what do I not need? And there's a lot of options. There are it's very responsible of you to ever. have that internal conversation. Oh, I didn't say I didn't walk away with a bunch. I just said I was trying to make $17 decisions. later. <laughs> 17 are you kidding me? I think I went way over that. I mean, well, you know, the Easter Bunny gave me some. You're uh, coming in the office, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the one thing I did not buy, though, I did not buy Peeps. All right, so that's another candy discussion on Off the Record. Well, uh, I don't know how many more candy discussions we can have. Are there any, any other? Well, we haven't done Valentine's. Maybe we'll talk Valentine's candy. February 2023, Next new year, year, new me. Yeah. If uh, you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox6investigators at fox.com. Sarah, Jenna, thanks for being on the podcast. I am always happy to be here. Enjoy it. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible, producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and of course, executive producer Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.